0: Well, obviously our pastor not here uh, this morning. If if I would take a a poll of most Alaskans, you know it's getting to be summertime, and um, you know you're gonna you know for most of us start doing outdoor activities, fishing and camping and hiking and all that kind of good stuff. What's the number one fear that most people have? When they're going out and doing that kind of activity here in Alaska, what bears? Well, your pastor has taken it upon himself to go out and relieve just a little bit of that anxiety out of your life. Uh, he and uh, another fellow, Darren, they're uh, they're going to go out and try to uh, you know reduce that anxiety by two bears at least. So. Um, I don't even think he has to take vacation time for for this because it's, 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 you know, it's part of his ministering to you guys. Um, And, Brian, what's the age limit on the trip to Europe? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, Parents of high school kids, I mean, if there's anything you could do to possibly get your kid on that trip, it would be well worth. The investment, I, I, I don't know the sp- details of it, but the ones that I was on as a kid in high school, you know, you know, changed my life for Christ. And I, I know it had the same impact, different type, you know, not this one specifically, but different different activities where you send your kids off and they're just um, immersed in and in, in serving Jesus. It, it, it will make a radical change in, in their life. So I would encourage you to do that whatever way you can. So, um, even though most of us would um, feel uncomfortable in, in admitting this, especially in spiritual circles, I, I believe that there's a, a drive and a desire in every man to be great. Now, I've been married for about 33 years and I'm not going to speak to what drives women. So my message is going to be directed primarily to, what, uh, to, to the men, but I believe most of what I will say will be very applicable to all. This is one thing that I can say with some authority about women, that I believe every wife and every single woman is looking to be married or are wanting or looking for a great man, or at least a man who is pursuing greatness in his life. I feel awkward in in saying this, but I will raise my hand that I want to become a great man. And even go further and say that God wants you to become a great man. And listen to this. God has also destined every last one of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus for greatness. So what is biblical greatness? Greatness is maximizing your potential for the glory of God and for the good of others. A key word in that definition is potential. The potential for the believer In Jesus Christ is the supernatural presence of Jesus along with the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power in our flesh. It's okay to want greatness in your life. It's not something that you have to mumble when others are listening or an idea you need to check at the church door. This may fly in the the face of, of what you have heard as a call to be meek and humble and a servant of all, but authentic greatness never negates any of these characteristics. In fact, it includes the true definition of all of them. Meekness is not walking around with a sunken chest, head down and doing everything you are asked to do by those within your sphere of influence. That is not meekness. What that is, is the world's attempt to cage and emasculate a male, to take a a God-driven uh, drive for greatness and sideline lull the hearts of men to inactivity and to sleep. The true definition of meekness does not negate hunger or dismiss thirst or better said, does not, Remove passion. Keep in mind that passion in and of itself is not a bad thing. It simply means a strong desire. Desire becomes bad only when it is wrongfully directed. Meekness simply means submitting your power, your passion to a higher control. It means submitting yourself to God's kingdom rule. We will look at an example of of meekness of this in a moment by looking at Moses. But let's go a, a, a step further. Let me ask you what you think of the following. God is not only looking for great men, but violent men who are willing to take the kingdom of God by force. Let me repeat that. God is looking for violent men who are willing to take the kingdom of God by force. What do you say to that? What does that speak to you? You may say, oh, that's probably some obscure passage out of Joshua or Deuteronomy where they're doing all the killing and shedding blood and all that stuff. No, it's, it's, from, the, it's from the New Testament. Well, maybe in Revelation, you know, all this you know, uh, symbolism and all that, that's where that's from. No, it's, it's from the Gospels. And, in fact, it's something that Jesus himself said. Matthew 11:12. Turn to that, please. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So this is in red letters, if you have a red letter Bible, meaning that these are the words directly from Jesus Himself. Okay, so what does this mean? We need to get the context of this passage. And that is from the first four chapters of Matthew. Jesus has been advancing the kingdom of God forcefully, meaning that he's been involved in spiritual warfare. He's been from the moment he was born. There have been forces that have been wanting to kill him. He had to go in the wilderness and Satan himself was trying to sideline his ministry He's been encountering and expelling demons and defeating illnesses. The parallel text to this passage is Luke seventeen, uh, Luke sixteen sixteen, and that says, "Since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, that replaces the forceful advancing of the kingdom by preaching of the gospel." And as for forceful men laying hold of the kingdom, that is exactly what is required. The disciples of Jesus, who are the disciples of Jesus? Who's the disciples of Jesus? That's us. That's you and me. Look to your neighbor and say, You're a disciple of Jesus. So the disciples of Jesus must not be indecisive, but instead we must be bold. We must be resolute. We must be forceful and determined. Why? Why do we have to be like this? Why do we have to be bold and determined and forceful and resolute? Because there's an epic battle going on around us. What do you mean an epic battle going around around us? I know about the war in Afghanistan. You know why you're not aware of it? You know why you're not aware of that epic battle that's going on around us? There's two reasons why you may not know about it. One reason is you haven't trusted in Christ. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ. And Satan himself enjoys that position quite well, thank you. Or the other reason why you may not know about it is you are a believer, but you haven't been living for Jesus Christ. You haven't been sharing your faith. You haven't been, when your friends or your Christian friends are acting inappropriate, you're saying, no, that's not right. That's not what a believer should be doing. You aren't sharing and, uh, scriptures with others. Believe me, if you start doing that, you start sharing your faith with others, you start confronting other folks in your life that you claim to be believers about their lifestyle, you start sharing Christian principles with others, you will immediately begin to experience that epic battle that is going on around us. So what is the battle? There's a roaring lion described in 1 Peter 5.8. There's a roaring lion. And 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This roaring lion is desiring to eat you, desiring to eat your family and your church and our nation. And the only thing that's going to defeat this roaring lion, Satan himself, are great men and women, men and women who are maximizing their potential for the glory of God and to serve others, who understand what meekness is, men who have submitted their power to the kingdom of God's rule, who are not indecisive, but who are bold, resolute, forceful, and, and determined. Does this describe the majority of the men in today's church? I don't think so. Men, we have to get focused on why God has us here. So let's take a look at a few great men mentioned in God's word. I mentioned earlier Moses. Moses in Numbers twelve three, turn there. It says that Moses was a weak man and folk Moses was the meekest man. Let me read that. Now the man Moses was very meek of more than all people who were on the on the face of the earth. But what did Moses do? What did Moses do? He led one of the greatest liberation movements of a nation of people that the world has seen. Over a million Jews who were in slavery, who were in captivity by the Egyptians. He brought that about. He did that. He accomplished that through his meekness. He, threw, he freed the Jewish nation from slavery by the Egyptians. Only the likes of Charleston Heston could play this man on the big screen. And because Moses was able to submit himself to divine authority, remember that's the definition of meekness, God was able to do great things in him and through him. Or state this differently, because of Moses' meekness, God instilled his potential into him. So Moses then became a great man because he took the potential of God in him to glorify God and to serve others. You see how all this connects? Now let's contrast Moses from Pharaoh. Pharaoh was also a great man. He had a magnificent kingdom. He had wealth beyond measure. A mighty army second to none in his day. But his greatness was human greatness. And human greatness comes from three sources. You can inherit it. You can be in the right place at the right time. Or you've worked hard to get what you have through long days, long hours. 365 days a year. Usually it's some combination of the three. There are probably a few self-made great men in this room this morning. And just as God had a message for Pharaoh through Moses to let my people go, God has a message for you this morning. What did Pharaoh say when Moses gave him his message from God? He said, no, he probably threw in a bunch of expletives along with it. No, he wasn't going to let these slaves go. It was one of the reasons why his kingdom was as magnificent and he was as wealthy as he was because of the work of those slaves over those years that they were in captivity. He said, no, and we all know what happened after that. If you don't read the book of Exodus or go rent the movie. But what is the message that God has for all self-made great men? And really, it's the same message that he has for all of us. But instead of this message coming through Moses, this message comes to today through the greatest prophet of all, through Jesus Christ, and his message is to turn to Christ, put your faith and trust in him. You may say, well, I'll have to give up too much. That may happen. God deals with each of us differently. One thing is for sure there are a multitude of folks in this room who would come up here and testify that everything that they may have been asked to give up by Jesus pales in comparison to what they have received from Him through their relationship with Him. There's a biblical saying that says you can't outgive God. And I challenge you to put that saying to the test. Don't make the mistake that Pharaoh committed and say no to Jesus. Just as God ungraded Pharaoh, I don't know if that's a word or not, but just as God ungraded Pharaoh, God can ungrade you. It may happen today, or for sure it will happen on your deathbed or more likely somewhere in between the consequences of failing to trust in Christ are too great to be blown off and ignored and the undeserved agony that your loved ones will suffer knowing that you are eternally in hell. That is more than they should have to bear. Don't do this. Don't make the mistake of Pharaoh Turn to Christ this morning. So let's look at some other great men of the Bible. There's Abraham in Genesis 12 two. he says, um, uh, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God certainly accomplished that for Abraham. God says to David in second Samuel seven, nine, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut you off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on earth. You notice in all those examples of greatness, it comes from God. It comes from God. Jesus' encounter with the apostles James and John and their mom gives us some additional insight into what it means to be great. Turn to Matthew 20. Verse 20, then the mother of Jebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those from whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I had a number of emotions over this passage. Um, if you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, well, tell me this story about uh, James and John going to Jesus. I would have said, yeah, yeah, these two guys, they wanted to, wanted to sit on the right and wanted to sit on the left to be, to be great. Well, as I got into this thing, I saw in verse 20 their mother their mother brought them to Jesus and i just was amazed by that i said well who are these guys and who is this mother that they you know you know, you know if i was jesus i would probably would have said hey guys you need to man up if you want to talk to me you come to me yourself don't have your mom drag me here and if i and 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 to the mom i probably would have said hey you need to cut the apron strings or let these guys um, you know do a little bit on their own and and thinking you know i would go follow a number of times as i prepared this but i was sitting over in that chair at the beginning of the service or during the service and um we were singing the songs and all that and this and i glanced at a lady that had attended a um, uh, a life group we had a couple years ago on prayer we studied the book the kneeling christian a fabulous book on prayer and this woman was such an inspiration to me about prayer. She has four boys, and it just came upon me. And, I mean, I was over there crying, and, and then the next thing that came upon me was, no, you know, moms are to be bringing their children before Jesus. And so, yeah, that's, you know, for what it's worth, that's a little exhortation and encouragement for the moms here that Jesus thinks it's perfectly fine for you to take your boys and your daughters before the savior. So even apostles of Jesus Christ have issues to deal with when it comes to their moms. So uh, wives, you know, when you run into that, and I know mine did, mine had to do that too. That cut, cut us a little slack. So what is this passage telling us about Greatness. Jesus didn't tell them not to desire significant influence and the ability to make an impact. He didn't say, oh, no, don't seek greatness. You need to be meek and humble. Come over to the church on Saturday morning and uh, rake the leaves and shovel the walk. Not that there's anything wrong with that. that those are important things. But no, he didn't, he didn't criticize them at all for the pursuit of greatness and significance. Rather, he only says... Just don't go about your greatness like the Gentiles through lording it over others and power plays and politics much the same way it is done today in our culture. But he says greatness in the kingdom of God is through service. True greatness is outward focus and others driven. What was our original definition of greatness? Taking God's provision to glorify God and to serve others. So let's pause here for a moment because I can hear what some of you may be thinking. You say, Tom, you know, you know, that's Abraham and that's David and two of the apostles, James and John. You know, these, these guys were great men to start with. That's not me. I'm just an ordinary guy just trying to get by. I can't do this stuff. You know, God probably specifically isolated these men and empowered them and told them what they would go out and do he has never said that to me. He has never said that to me. If you believe that, that is so so wrong. He did say this to you, and he is doing it, and he's continuing to say that to you right now. Turn to John fourteen twelve. John fourteen twelve says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He Would do even greater things than these. He will do greater things than these. Do you catch what this says that in addition to just doing what Jesus did, which would be pretty great in of itself, but we will do even greater things. It can't be any more plain than that. Jesus is saying right here about me and about each person in this room this morning. If you are a man who has put his faith in Christ and have either chosen not to claim this or believe this, you have fallen into the trap of Satan himself, whose desire is to make you weak, ineffective, and, and spiritually neutered for service in the kingdom of God. We will discuss at the end exactly what the works are that Jesus is referring to here in this passage. So, okay, Tom, you've convinced me that being a great man is, is a good thing and sounds like every believer needs to pursue that. Um, but, you know, so how, how do I do it? How do I do this? Good question. There's a man in the Old Testament who models this for us on how to become a great man of God. Most of you haven't heard about this guy. I know I didn't a few weeks ago. And there are only a few verses to speak to him. His name is Shamgar. His story takes place during the time of the judges, during the early years of the nation of Israel. The time of the judges is a time of chaos, followed by peace, followed by chaos, followed by peace. It just kept going chaos, peace, chaos, peace. It was a time when relativism ruled. Relativism means that there are no absolutes or any guidelines that govern individuals or the society. Several times through the book of Judges, uh, the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes is mentioned. Meaning if it feels good, then do it. That's okay. There's nothing telling you what is right or wrong. Many would say that our culture today, if not already there, is getting close to becoming a, a relativistic society. And as you can imagine, this time with the philosophy of life made the days of Shamgar a terrifying time to live. Judges 5 6 support that view. Turn there, Judges 5-6. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned, travelers took to a winding paths. Basically, what this passage is telling us that the people if they had to travel, didn't use the main roads, but instead to be safe, traveled the lesser-known trails and paths in order to get someplace. Historical records tell us that, the, uh, that the, uh, during this time that the Philistines were harassing and attacking the Israelites, and one of the ways that they would do that was by controlling the main highways to keep the people from traveling and get, getting their crops to town. This process would be very destructive to a nation's economic well-being and could very well destroy the nation. Judges 3.31 tells us what Shamgarar did for the nation of Israel. Judges 3.31, after Ehud came Shamgarar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Shamgar does not, did not start out as a judge, but instead, he became a judge. Scripture does not tell us the details of Shamgar's early life, but we can make some conclusions based on the cultural norms of the agrarian society that he lived in. Based on the weapon used in this passage, an ox goad, we can assume that Shamgar was a farmer. The ox goad the ox gourd (laughs) was used for two main purposes. First, it was approximately an eight-foot-long stick, a sturdy stick that was sharpened on one end and the other end shaped like a chisel. The pointed end was used to both direct and prod the oxen on the various tasks they did. They were used for plowing, for uh, running the grinding wheel to ground up the, the grain, and for pulling the ox cart that brought the, the produce to market, the other chisel shaped end was used to help break up hardened soil when plowing and to cut the roots that the plow would, um, that the plow could not cut through, so it was only a tool that a simple farmer would possess. A politician, a religious leader, a judge, or a wealthy landowner would have no use for an ox goad. So what did Sham- Shamgar do with his ox goad? He killed 600 Philistines. Shamgar was not wealthy, powerful, or have any kind of army when he dealt with the rowing bands of the Philistines that were ruining the nation that he lived in. There are three lessons that we can learn from Shamgarar and becoming a great man. First of all, stop making excuses. Stop waiting to do what needs to be done until you feel you are in a position to do it. Rather than waiting with the excuse that, well, I can't really do this because I'm not a judge yet, or I haven't been promoted, or You know, you don't have all the resources you feel you need, discover what you can do right now and do it. Stop making excuses and stop waiting. You know, when you are looking for a job, there's a phrase, there's a phrase that you often hear, and it's, I'm sorry the position has already been filled. Well, gentlemen, the position of waiting and making excuses has already been filled up years ago in the church by men whose lives today are marked by years of ineffectiveness and passivity for the kingdom of God. When it comes to becoming a great man for Jesus Christ, don't delay for something more before you step out to make a difference for Jesus in your families, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Keep in mind that Shamgar was a farmer farmer, Before he ever became a judge, yet he yet had he made the excuse that he was only a farmer. He would never have become a judge. Shamgar became a judge because he delivered a a nation. Men don't wait until you become great to say, hey, now I'm going to do something great. Don't wait until you become a big shot in order to start doing big shot things. Shamgar didn't wait until he had a bigger tool a bigger weapon, a bigger name, or a bigger army. We need to be like Shamgarar. This is such an important principle for becoming great within the kingdom of God. Remember, greatness is taking the potential you have from who? From God to glorify him and to serve others. This is what Shamgarar did as he took the limited resources that he had, the ox goad, and God then miraculously used that to accomplish his purpose. God is watching you to see what you will do first with what he has already given you and see what you would do with that. Yes, you may be limited in your resources or even in your skills, but while God doesn't always call the equipped, he will always equip the called. What you have today is, is all you need to do what God has destined you for right now. We just need to use it, to step out in faith with that. The second lesson to learn from uh, Shamgarar is after you stop making excuses, is to advance one step at a time. Being a farmer, Shamgarar knew this well. One, corn, one kernel of corn planted will produce a thousand more kernels at harvest time. This principle of multiplication uh, in works it works in business and in farming, and Shamgarar also used it in battle, looking back at judges three thirty one we read that he killed six hundred Philistines. It is illogical and impossible to kill that many at once, but instead it occurred over a period of time as Shamgarar confronting the roving bands of Philistines who were ma- running havoc on the roads. He would take out the much smaller bands as he encountered them. In other words, he picked them off in pieces rather than taking out the entire army at once. One of the major excuses men will make when facing what seems like an insurmountable challenge or goal is to say that, hey, we can't do that. So what do we end up doing? We don't do anything at all. But like the kernel of corn planted in the ground, if you will simply... Take each challenge one step at a time, one project at a time. You will be amazed at where you eventually wind up. One man saved a nation simply because he didn't attempt to save it all at once. He did what he could where he was with what he had, and soon he had dealt with 600 men. This is the secret, and it's a powerful secret if you will simply own it and apply it. The last principle to learn from Shamgarar's life is in his name. Shamgarar is not a Jewish name, but his heritage is that of a Canaanite. Even while Shamgarar did not come from the pedigree in order to become a Hebrew judge, he acted as a Hebrew judge even before he was made one. Shamgarar did not allow his limited resources, his overwhelming odds, or his lack of heritage to slow him down from becoming a great man, and neither should we. No matter where you come from, the limitations you have, or how difficult the task, God can make you great. So finally, I want to come back to John the Baptist in Matthew 11. Jesus had some very kind words to say about John the Baptist in verses 9 through 11 of Matthew 11. Then what did you go out to see? This is Jesus speaking. A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Pretty kind words to say about John the Baptist. So what made... What made John so special? Is it that he had the privilege of actually pointing out the Messiah, which none of his predecessors had done? John did no miracles, as I can find, but he was greater than any of the earlier prophets and great men of the Old Testament, simply because he had the job of announcing and then actually identifying Jesus as the Christ. I thought that was fascinating. Just because he pointed out the Savior, he became greater than all the others. This must have been a startling statement to the Jews who revered the prophets. And now Jesus is saying that John is the greatest because he's announcing the arrival of the Savior of the world. But folks, it gets even better. I didn't read the last line of verse 11 where it says, Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So who are the least in the kingdom of heaven? Who's that made up of? It's me and it's you. Even if we're the least in the kingdom of heaven, that passage tells us that we can be greater than John the Baptist and greater than all the Old Testament prophets and saints. How can that be? How can the least, the least gifted, the least significant, the least prominent, the least outspoken of today's believers be greater than the greatest of the Old Testament figures? There's only one and only one reason for this designation on believers today. And that is that we have the privilege, the honor, the obligation and the command by Jesus himself of telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to minimize the importance of both social and political issues that are godless and so often a front to our Christian faith. For example, I I was appreciative of what, you know, Pastor Brad said about the Proposition five a few weeks ago. But all of these issues pale in comparison to sharing the love of Jesus Christ with the lost. That is what will make us great men and women of God. Sharing the gospel, sharing the love of Jesus Christ with others. Let me ask you a question. How's that going? Because I've asked myself that question this week. How's that going? You know, we may say, well, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't, I'm not an evangelist. And, um, and that came up during the messages on the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, you may not have the gift of an evangelist, because that does not minimize the responsibility on you to be a person sharing Jesus Christ with others. An illustration of that, you may not have the, uh, the gift of wisdom, but that doesn't mean you walk around being stupid all day long. So we, we are all called to be evangelists. I took a, a course on personal evangelism about 30 years ago, taught by a man who I, I think was the greatest evangelist in the city of Anchorage. I mean, he, I mean, it was just amazing watching this man be used by God. But he taught this class on personal evangelism, and if I had my say so, I'd make this a requirement of every life group leader to, to uh, include this in their, um, in their time together. And what, what, it, what it was, was we were asked to write up a 30-second, um, write out 30-second um, testimony of what Jesus has meant to us in our life and tie at least one scripture verse that is applicable to whatever our testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives. And then we would come and share that to the group and each, we'd go around the group and, 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 and it, by doing this process, just really bound the group together. It was kind of a common fear we all had and responsibility. And so we shared our, um, our, um, our, our testimony and then we were told, okay, now come back next week and say it for memory. And so we would do that and then we would all come around and say our 30-second min- testimony by memory and it's, uh, sprinkled with a verse or two. And then the next assignment was to come up with a three-minute testimony to expand that into three minutes and incorporate two or three, four verses in that. And so we did that the third week. And then the fourth week, we were given the assignment to have that, be able to say that in memory. And what that empowered us to do is if you are desirous to be an evangelist if your desires to be someone who's sharing Christ, if your desires to be classified in here with all the least who are greater than John the Baptist and the other great men of the Old Testament, you need to be, first of all, praying for God to give you the opportunities to share Christ, and then when He gives you those opportunities to say, "Oh," and then blurt out your 30-second testimony. And then, if it re- is it received in fertile ground, then make the transition to the three-minute testimony, and where you're sharing your 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 verses along with it. It's a powerful tool to be used. It's something that everyone can do. Now, you may say, "Well, I really don't have a testimony to share. God really not do anything in my life." Well, if that's what you're saying, then. You need to deal, two two reasons for that. One is that you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. If you don't have a testimony of what Jesus is doing in your life, the creator God of the universe who, who says that he will indwell you and radically change you, and that's not going on, you need to be talking to someone, a friend who's encouraged you to come here, the pastor, whatever, talk to me. You need to get right with God, and you need to get Christ in your life so you do have a testimony. Or the second thing is that you have been living away from Christ for so long that, you know, it's grown cold, and you don't have that testimony any longer. You can change that today. We're going to be closing with a song that is a tremendous testimony for any believer, any person to sing back to God, about committing your life to Jesus Christ, a commitment that will lead to empowering you to become a great man or woman for Jesus Christ. For us to move forward as individuals in our homes and churches and communities, it will require more than the faint of heart. It will require men of courage who will rise to the occasion within the realm where they have been placed. This would be such a hopeless call because it's impossible to accomplish. But were it not for one thing. That one thing is the creator God of the universe, first of all, who loves you more than you can ever imagine, wants to do a mighty work through you. It's not only for a few gifted ones of us. It is for everyone who claims Jesus as their savior. There are some of us here this morning that are committed to do just that, but we desire all of you to join us. But whether you do or you don't, we will move on without you because a mighty and a powerful God resides in us who is desirous to do great things through us. Will you join us? I pray that you will. Thank you.
1: And worship him. This is my desire to.